Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teigman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Martha Nussbaum, Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. And she's here to talk to us about sexuality and the law. Her new book on this topic, entitled From Disgust to Humanity, Sexual Orientation and Constitutional Law, is forthcoming from Oxford University Press and is part of a series on inalienable rights. Martha Nussbaum, Welcome. Well, hi. It's very good to be here, Mark and Matt. In your book, you argue that there's been a historical tendency to place legal restrictions on certain kinds of sexual acts on the basis of the feelings of disgust that those acts generally inspire. And then as a corrective to that way of thinking, you recommend another way of thinking. You recommend in particular that we exercise our capacity to imagine the world through another person's eyes, to see that person as fully human rather than merely as a thing. In other words, you think that whatever legal restrictions we do end up placing on each other's sexual conduct ought to be informed by this feeling of sympathy, rather than by feelings of disgust. Yeah, that's basically right, but let me step back a little bit. Uh, In 2004, I wrote a book called Hiding from Humanity, which was a very broad philosophical investigation of both disgust and shame, where I looked at, first of all, the cognitive content of both of those emotions. But in the case of disgust, the idea is the rejection of something that's seen as a contaminant, the feeling, yuck, let me get that away from me. But experiments have shown that it isn't just a bodily reaction. It's a, it, 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 there is a thought process involved there. And what I tried to show there was that not only do we reject feces, urine, other waste products, but all societies identify a group of people whom they stigmatize as low, bestial, dirty, and then they reject them as contaminating to them. So disgust, uh, which could be useful in some contexts, then becomes socially very uh, pernicious. And and I looked at the role of disgust in social hierarchies of various types, including anti-Semitism, misogyny, uh, the Indian caste system, and so on. But of course, uh, in America, I think if we want to find a place where we see the politics of disgust operating, it's in the area of sexuality, above all, that we see it. And we don't just see it, but we find very influential theoreticians defending it. So the most in, one of the most influential legal theorists of the 20th century, Lord Devlin, argued that a society needs to be able to defend itself against intrusion, contamination, defilement, and that therefore people were within their rights if they used their very strong feelings of disgust to identify things that should be illegal even if they caused no harm to anyone else. Uh, His great adversary was John Stuart Mill, who of course uh, holds that it's only when something either harms or imminently threatens to harm another person that it could possibly be within the realm of legal regulation. So Devlin argued that disgust was enough, and and, and part of what I uh, did in the earlier book was to try to show how unreliable disgust is, how connected it is with completely irrational stigmatization and subordination. So in this new book, I I zero in on the politics of sexual orientation in America, and I say, look, here we see the politics of disgust operating in a particularly pernicious form. I look at the propaganda of the Christian right and identify disgust operating there. And then what do we want instead? Well, of course, what we want 
is respect for persons. And that, in a way, goes without saying. And we want equal respect for persons. Where I bring in imagination is that when disgust is so potent and it's so widespread, then I think we can't rely on our reasoning process to give us respect. We need something else. We need to be able to see the people as full human beings pursuing purposes that are similar to our own. Gay and lesbian people have often been depicted as marginal weirdos who are just sort of like animals. They're really not like us at all. And that's happened in, in the legal writing of even Supreme Court opinions. So to counter that, I want to say we need not only respect, but we need a respect that's powered and infused by a kind of ability to imagine the situation of the other person. Now, of course, imagination by itself is not enough either. We need to combine it with the uh, respect. But, but my whole point is that even if we're trying to be respectful, we probably won't get there without imagination. So let's try to take these two ideas in turn. First, the idea of disgust. One of the theorists that you talk about as a contemporary defender of the role of disgust is Leon Cass who has advanced not the same argument as Lord Devlin, but an argument along similar lines that disgust is an emotion that could quite rightly inform our legal practices. You in particular take issue in the book with the idea, quoting here, that disgust is a reliable warning sign steering us away from atrocity. This is something that comes up in Cass. Reading that, I felt that there might be at least something right about that idea, that in certain circumstances, we do need something as powerful as disgust to play that role. For example, the closest that I could find in myself to such a feeling of disgust was about an idea like torture, where it seems to me that for us to get into a discussion about torture where we're discussing the reasons why it's wrong is already a couple of steps too far. That there's, a kind, there's something about the atrocity of torture that elicits quite rightly an emotion of disgust that makes me want to place that beyond any further discussion. So what would you say to an argument like that? that in certain cases, disgust is the right response to have and the response from which we should depart in our reasoning? I think that's, that's a very important question, and I wrestle with it in Hiding from Humanity because there are these cases of what we might call moralized disgust, and all the theorists who work on disgust uh, agree that that's a problem. So how do we deal with that? Well, one thing that one could try to say is, well, there, the word disgust is being used loosely, and what we really feel is some kind of very strong indignation. Now, I think that goes for some cases, but perhaps not for the one that you mention. Uh, certainly not all the time. So then they, let, let's suppose there are these cases where disgust is there as well as indignation, and these are two separate responses that we have. I guess here I would say that indignation is the more appropriate and the more constructive response. In disgust, what we're basically saying is, yuck, that contaminates me. Let me get that out of my sight, or let me get me out of the way of that. And that's not a particularly constructive social response. It can involve shutting your eyes to really terrible things when they're going on. And, and of course, people often do shut their eyes to things. Another problem with the disgust response is that disgust tracks blood and gore. One reason that torture arouses disgust is that we it does involve bodily 
waste products, blood, gore, and so on. Now, we know that when juries are presented with the account of what a murderer has done in ways that stress the blood and gore, they'll be more likely to find aggravating factors in the homicide than when that isn't presented. But that doesn't always track how bad the homicide was. It doesn't track premeditation. It doesn't track things like the calculating cold quality of the murderer. And so it isn't particularly reliable. But then let's think about indignation. You see, by contrast, in getting indignant about something is to say that is wrong, it ought not to have happened, and it had better not happen again. I mean, so it has a backward-looking and a forward-looking aspect. And so I feel that that's the right response to uh, even something like torture, where I think what you're saying is that to have the indignation is maybe to... Um, to get too close? I think you're saying that maybe we've gone too far if we even get to the thought that's wrong. But I don't know that I agree with that, because I think that the other thing, that, well, we won't look at that at all, is actually a kind of evasion of the uh, moral confrontation with that. I think that's helpful. Maybe one might say that what I've been referring to as disgust, in fact, doesn't fall under the rather sharper concept that you have here. So uh, we could say that the concept of disgust with which you're operating is one which is very closely tied to what you call the primary objects of, of disgust, so blood and gore and bodily functions. And that when I talk about my disgust at the notion of torture, well, that's really better understood as indignation. And that's where the power in my objection is. So I'm not sure that you would have to say that the indignation gets too close. Perhaps what I've been calling disgust is really something more like liking the indignation, but it's helpful to, okay, to good. clarify the terms. I, you know, the only thing I'd add to what you say is that I think we do, it is initially close to the primary objects, but then somehow it spreads onto people in ways that impute to them characteristics of the primary objects. So notoriously in the Deep South in America, African Americans were thought to be smelly. They were thought to really contaminate physical objects. I mean, you had to have separate drinking fountains and separate swimming pools because the presence of those bodies contaminated your body. And my, my father, who was from Georgia, forbade me to use a glass that an African-American servant had used or to use a toilet that an African-American servant had used. Just, it's, it's magical thinking because, of course, you wash the glass. It's not, not about germs. It's about some magical thought of contagion or contamination. So that's all over the place. I'd like to ask about this distinction you're making between indignation and disgust. It's almost as though, or at least this is the way I'm hearing it, indignation is confronting the act directly, whereas disgust is more like retreating from it or running away. Do you mean to suggest that indignation is a kind of rational response as opposed to an irrational response? Well, I think the words rational and irrational are used in such slippery ways. If by rational and irrational you mean on the one hand having a cognitive content and on the other hand having no cognitive content, I would say both have a cognitive content. Uh, and the cognitive content of disgust is a thought about defilement and contamination. Cognitive content of indignation it usually centers around the idea of a, a wrong or an offense. Uh, but if what you mean is a normative notion of rationality, that is, source of good reasons for action, well, sometimes anger and indignation are not uh, sources of good reasons. It depends whether you got the facts right, uh, did the person really kill the person, uh, but also whether you've got the sense of importance right. If you get very upset, Aristotle points this out, because somebody forgets your name, well, you've probably got the values uh, skewed, and, and so you're reacting irrationally, so on. So, so I think with disgust, the question is, are there any instances in which disgust is rational? Well, 
basically when it tracks primary objects where there's a close overlap between disgust and danger. That's probably how disgust evolved, that it keeps us away from danger. So there's something, it's reasonable for us to throw away the milk when it smells disgusting. That's, it doesn't perfectly track the sense of danger, but probably pretty prudent to follow it in those cases. So we've talked about the notion of disgust. Uh, the other important point that you made at the beginning was about imagination, which is part of the politics of humanity that you suggest. One idea that you make recourse to is the idea that to see someone as fully human is at least partly to be able to see the world through their eyes. You talk in some of the chapters of your book about the importance of uh, gay and lesbian people coming out, which allows those around them to begin to empathise in a certain way, to see what their gay and lesbian friends want as a species of what they want as human beings. What I wondered was whether imagination in these cases is nevertheless enough to do the job that you want to do. It seems that, and this is a point that you make yourself in the book, in cases of homophobia, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case that there's exactly a failure of imagination. Often it may be the case that someone really is imagining the world through someone else's eyes and it looks profoundly wrong to them. That might be part of what they recoil from. They recoil from something that certainly they see in themselves. They feel that they hold in common with the other person, but that they feel is wrong, somehow a perversion of human nature. So what I'm wondering is whether imagination is enough or whether it needs to be bolstered by some sense of not just what human nature is, but what's good about human nature. Absolutely, and I, my theoretical position has always been that empathy is not sufficient for sympathy, or compassion is the word that I prefer to use, because uh, you could have plenty of empathy and use it sadistically to torture people. So um, it may not even be necessary for sympathy because you could quite well have the right moral attitudes without being able to imagine very well what the creature is like. For example, we can't easily imagine uh, what the mental life of animals is like, and yet we could refrain from treating them badly just on the basis of some moral principles. But I think the reason that it's valuable here is that, first of all, people, we have to assume that most people are not sadistic. They really have fairly decent instincts about how we would treat a young person who's trying to grow up and live well. So if they can be got to the point of seeing that person as sort of like a child that they might have or like a person who might be their friend, then the other good moral responses will kick in and complement that and make them use that then for, for good ends. Now, as you say, you could try to vividly picture something and see it still as loathsome and, and sinful and so on. But I think that there's a particular kind of error that happens in sex as also with religion. Now, in religion, it used to be just really common for people to just think, oh, this is an agent of Satan in our midst. And But when they could actually imagine somebody as seeking for meaning, trying to make sense of the mysteries of life, well, they come out in the wrong place, I think, but still, they're trying to do something and they're not just trying to destroy the community. Okay, so that I think is the parallel to the sexual orientation case, that what you want is for people to get to the point of saying, these are not weird debauchees and degenerates who are somehow sex addicts who just want to undermine the community. This is what Devlin thought and wrote. Uh, but, but instead, they're people trying to live well. And, and even if we think that they've made the wrong choice or they made a sinful choice, we could still see that, that they're pursuing human purposes 
that we too can be pursuing. One of the arguments you make in your book is that if the state is to be involved in the process of marriage at all, it ought to extend marriage rights to people of all sexualities. But you also argue that perhaps the state ought not to be involved in the process of marriage to begin with. Perhaps they ought to be involved in something more bureaucratic like civil unions. How did you come to that view? Well, marriage has three aspects. There's, of course, the religious aspect, and there it seems wrong for the state to be very involved in that because we have an establishment clause. Uh, Then there's the material aspect. The state gives a package of benefits to certain relationships, but that is, of course, taken care of by civil unions. And it's the middle part that we're arguing about, what I call the expressive aspect of marriage. The state is celebrating, conferring approval on. Now, what I want to say about that is, first of all, it just doesn't work out that way. When the state marries Britney Spears to somebody that she gets annulled from two hours later, we don't think, well, the state made a mistake. It conferred approval wrongly. We don't even think about it, really. So the state can marry pretty much anyone on the basis of no showing of seriousness. And in fact, almost anyone can perform a marriage. In Massachusetts, for example, you can each person can perform one marriage a year. So if you want to marry your friend, you can do that. As it operates, it operates in a very non-serious way. And yet somehow people come to the conclusion that it connotes approval. So there's a lot of inconsistency. But I guess I think that why, you know, if we step back, why should we think the state should be in the business of saying we approve of these relationships and we don't approve of these? Let, Let the religions take care of that or let whatever secular social group you belong to take care of that. Let the state just stick to its business and give out property rights and and other uh, material benefits. It strikes me that these are precisely the lines along which the debate around same-sex marriage has shifted in recent years. It seems that more towards the beginning of this decade, it was about procuring the same kinds of legal rights for everyone, such as visitation rights, health insurance, and so on. Whereas it seems that more recently, especially in the Democratic primary last year, we had Democratic candidates coming out and saying, we're prepared to give you civil unions. And leaders from the gay and lesbian community saying, no, that's not enough. That would be Jim Crowish. That would be separate but equal. So it seems to me the whole tenor of the debate has shifted, and that strikes me as interesting. It is. Uh, I think a good parallel is the laws against interracial marriage that uh, the Supreme Court just struck those down. They did not say, well, you know, if you create a separate category called transracial union and you use that word, that'll be enough for you to do. Uh, No, what they saw is that the failure to give the word marriage was an indignity so long as the other group is getting it. So it's the equality issue here. And that's what's being fought about is the, the idea of equal dignity. So another recurring thread in your book is the distinction between activities performed in public and activities performed in private. So many of our intuitions about how sexual conduct ought to be regulated depend on the idea that sexual acts performed in private are not anyone else's business. This has been the foundation of some of our legislation. It seems to be the foundation of a lot of common thinking on these questions. What someone else gets up to in the privacy of their own bedroom is up to them. What you point out, though, which is very interesting, is that this intuition is actually very difficult to spell out in legal terms and is sometimes uh, not even helpful in thinking through these issues. So maybe you could say something about the difficulty that you see here. Well, privacy is a notoriously slippery and uh, multivalent concept. Uh, Judy Thompson long ago wrote an article saying that it's a hopelessly confused concept, and I think she's not far wrong. First of all, it has an informational aspect. The private is the secret 
It has a spatial aspect like the private place, the home, and then it has a decisional aspect. The private means what's your own to decide. And in American legal history, especially the second and third, the spatial and the decisional, have gotten very, very confused. So when we talk about a constitutional right to privacy, what really is centrally meant is that certain kinds of decisions, such as decisions about childbearing, contraception, and so on, are a person's own to make and cannot be interfered with by anyone else. But in the way that the decisions have been worked out, the spatial weaves through it in a way that's very confusing. So we find that these decisions are protected, well, maybe it's because they're in the home or in the privacy of the marital bedroom. And one case actually did hold that you can legally use pornography in your home but not necessarily anyplace else. Now, what I argue is that the really relevant issue for legal regulation is Mills' contrast between the self-regarding act and the non-self-regarding act. That what's relevant is the impact it has on others who don't consent. So if something is either harmful or extremely offensive to others who is thrust in their face in a way that they don't consent, then we can at least entertain the possibility of legal regulation. But if the act is performed in seclusion or in some other way fails to have anyone there who's non-consenting, let's say it's a sex club where you have to pay to be admitted, you have to choose to go there, then it seems to be just as self-regarding as the act that's performed in the marital bedroom. And so if we think of Mill's distinction, then all kinds of sexual acts that are uh, only dubiously protected even now, such as acts in sex clubs or the right to use sex toys and so on, these would be protected, but right now it's not uh, really clear what's protected and what isn't. So the decision that overthrew Barrowers versus Hardwick, decision called Lawrence. Lawrence referred to the decisional aspect of privacy, but it also referred to the home. So we were never sure whether it was the fact that these two men had the right to choose to have sex because they chose it and no one else was involved, or whether it was because they were in their home. And so these things are really a mess right now in American law and they need to be straightened out. I think we should avoid the word privacy wherever we can because it is such a nest of confusions. Martha Nussbaum, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.